Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Welcome to the Ugly Radio on the Podmoth Network, a lo-fi sci-fi audio theater anthology series made for late nights and strong drinks. Join us monthly as we broadcast a pirate signal across time and space, featuring stories, songs, and frequencies from a rotating list of voice actors, writers, storytellers, and musicians. If you're looking for high-quality science fiction, skin-crawling horror, and other genre fiction, listen to The Ugly Radio on the Podmoth Network, now available wherever you get your podcasts. The Ugly Radio. See you in the void. What story do you have for us today? Well, before I tell you that uh, which story I'm going to do, I just wanted to do say a little reminder to people that we have our new um, updated Patreon is available with some cool features. You know, we're going to say your name on the podcast. We're also going to send you some cool stuff if you subscribe for more than four months and but what's really cool is that we're going to do, um, you'll get access to some exclusive content where we just sit and hang out and drink and tell some kind of news buzzworthy stories. And we're going to get buzzed while with each other. the buzz and bullshit. And if we can get uh, Patreons involved, then we will do that and we'll have a big like drunk fest story time chat session so if you're interested in supporting us through patreon please go check it out you can always use the link in our show notes but on a serious note of the topic of this podcast i am going to be telling you about a kidnapping that occurred in georgia and where the victim was buried alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What story do you have for us today? I'm going to be talking about Lake Neos. And to go with that, I've got a cocktail called Just Off the Lake. The ingredients are two ounces of vodka, half ounce of blue curacao, one ounce of fresh lemon juice, one ounce of simple syrup, two ounces of soda water, and lemon slice and mint sprig for garnish. Sounds like a very basic drink. Yes, this. it does. <laughs> very basic. But it's so pretty. 
Yeah. It I is like so pretty eye. with the blue curacao and the little mint sprig. That's tasty. Yeah. You think? Mm. Yeah, it's it's not that bad. It's, it's not a little bad. Like, it, the blue curacao, I'm not a huge fan of, but there's not enough of it to like really irritate me. I put, I, I probably put more than two ounces of soda water in it though. I probably mm. put like half a can. Mm. Yeah. I don't know that I love it. It's it's all right. All right, Ready, let's What's get the into story? this. It, I didn't know about this type of thing. And after learning about it, I'm really scared. So, Oh, no. Oh, yeah. no. I don't like that. Okay. Lake Neos is home to many indigenous Cameroonians. And on August 21st, uh, 1986, many were facing a disaster. So Lake Neos is a crater lake in the northwest region of Cameroon. Located about 196 miles uh, northwest of the capital. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I don't even know where to start. But the capital okay. of Cameroon. <laughs> okay. Uh, Nios is a deep lake high on the flank of an inactive volcano in the Oku Volcanic Plain. A pocket of magma lies beneath the lake and leaks carbon dioxide into the water, changing it into carbonic acid. Nios is one of the only three lakes known to be saturated with carbon dioxide in this way, and therefore prone to limnic eruptions, which is the main focus of this story today. It, it doesn't sound good. So is it's it bubbly? It's really not. Slightly, but most of the CO2 gets trapped at the bottom of the lake. I'm not sure how. But th this lake yeah. is super deep, so it gets trapped at the bottom, like kind of where the volcano, like closer to the volcanic activity. Okay. Interesting. So when talking about volcanoes, many imagine an eruption as a hot lava or ash violently exploding from a volcano. But a limnic eruption is a lot more subtle. Limnic eruptions, also known as lake overturns, is a very rare type of natural disaster in which dissolved carbon dioxide suddenly erupts from deep lake waters forming a, a gas cloud. What? On August 21st, 1986, everything carried on as usual. Locals were tending to animals and their land when a slight tremor occurred beneath their feet. It was so small that most people didn't really even notice it. But anyone who was near the lake noticed something strange. The normally blue lake water began to bubble and turn red. <gasps> red? Yeah. Deep below the red. surface, a limnic eruption happened, causing the dissolved CO2 at the bottom to rapidly rise to the top, causing the bubbles. The water wow. turned red due to iron-rich water being rapidly oxidized. 
Okay. So all this iron and CO2 at the bottom just flip places with the normal water at the top. Basically. Oh, weird. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's weird. Lake level dropped by about a meter. And... (gasps) 100 to 300,000 tons of CO2 shot out of the lake at about 60 miles an hour. Oh my gosh. It's a big ass cloud. That's huge. Holy (laughs) cow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Since CO2 is a lot heavier than air, this dense cloud of noxious gas flooded the nearby villages and farms for about 14 miles. Gosh. Yeah. The gas cloud was concentrated enough to suffocate many people in their sleep in the villages of Neos, Cam, Cha, and Subum. About 4,000 inhabitants fled the area, and many of these developed respiratory problems, such as lesions and paralysis, as a result of the the gas cloud. Yeah. Holy shit. Nearly 1,800 people and 3,500 livestock were suffocated by the gas cloud. Oh, my God. Many reporters compared it to the aftermath of a neutron bomb. Yeah. Because it's just like people, like cows just walking in the middle of the field just plopped over. Killed over. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had no oxygen. Super gross. Following the eruption, many survivors were treated at the main hospital uh, in the city's capital. Interviews with survivors and pathologic studies indicated that victims rapidly lost consciousness and that death was caused by CO2 asphyxiation. At non-lethal levels, CO2 can uh, produce sensory hallucinations, such that many people exposed to CO2 report the order of sulfuric compounds, which uh, none were present. So they mm-hmm. kind of think that they were hallucinating the smells of sulf- like sulfur and stuff like that. Because there wasn't well, any found at the lake, like in the water okay. samples, there wasn't any sulfuric acid or any of the other like ghost- gross chemicals that come out of eruptions. I mean, I've been at, in Hawaii where there was a volcano erupting and you can mm-hmm. stand like on the edge of the crater and it stinks like rotten eggs so badly. Like, so there's sulfuric gas when volcanoes do their shit. So interesting that they didn't find any in that lake, though. Skin lesions found on survivors present. Uh, pressure sore pressure sores, and in a few cases, exposure in heat source, but there's no evidence of chemical burns or flash burns from exposure to hot gases. So people, like, got really fucked up by this. They had burns? Burns from the hot CO2 gas, yeah. That's crazy town. I wouldn't ever think that that would be a possibility. It was essentially like flash boiling at the eruption. So it was like basically steam, CO2 steam. Okay, that makes sense. So the people that had the wounds were close to the lake? Yes. Or was it 
Okay. Because you said it was yeah. like 14. So it was 14 miles, and they estimated wow. that the gas cloud was traveling at about uh, 20 to 30 miles an hour. Holy moly. Yeah. That's wild. 300,000 tons. That's crazy. That is crazy. The scale of the disaster led to much study on how a recurrence could be prevented. Several researchers proposed the installation of degassing columns from rafts in the middle of the lake. The principle is to slowly vent the CO2 by lifting heavy saturated water from the bottom of the lake through a pipe. Initially by causing a pump or initially by using a pump, but only until the release of the gas inside the pipe naturally fits the column of the effervescent water, making the process self-sustaining. So it's kind of like a chimney at the bottom that's like pulling out the gas in the air and right. releasing and little it. bits of it at a time so it doesn't just build up down there and create a, a lake overturn again. That sounds kind of smart. Yeah. And it, starting from 1995, uh, feasibility studies were successfully conducted and the first permanent degassing tube was installed at Lake Neos in 2001. Two additional pipes were installed in 2011, and in 2019, it was determined that the degassing had reached an essentially steady state, and that a single one of the installed pipes would be able to self-sustain the degassing process in the future. So, from two, 2011 on, to get like it's impossible for that to happen again because okay. they maintained steady amount of CO2 at the lake instead of constantly building up on it. Okay. Do you have any? Like, yeah, huh? it would be terrifying. Do you have any information like how often this would happen when it happened last? It's like extremely rare. Like, okay. There's only been a couple of them recorded, I believe. Okay. Let me look. Because that would be interesting. Like if you lived in the area and it was something that happened like, oh, this happens every, you know, 10 to 15 years or something. And everybody's still just hanging out like, oh, it could happen any day now that half of the town doesn't wake up because they suffocated from carbon dioxide poisoning in their sleep. So it's only been re ever recorded two times. The Okay. Both times in Cameroon, one at Lake Mon Monoon. Which only killed 37 people. And the second one was at Lake Neos. So it seems like it's only happening in Cameroon. Oh, don't go to Cameroon, I guess. Probably all right. There's probably much more dangerous things to worry about in Cameroon. True. I'm sure they got There's bugs that can fucking things. make your arms fall off. Right. Wow. I have never heard of anything like that. Did not know that anything like it's that so could terrifying. even possibly even happen. Coming, I don't think. Maybe it just looked like fog, but you just think, oh, wow, it's getting pretty foggy today. And then right. all of a sudden you just pass out and die. So, I mean, it sounds like it would be a pretty peaceful way to die, right? Hallucinate and fall asleep. And fall asleep. Unless it's hot and it's burning your lungs and stuff. Well, that's true. That would suck. Okay. <laughs> You're getting steamed. I don't want to find out. 
<laughs> I don't want to find shrimp. out. No, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I'm good. The Missing Magnolias podcast tells the stories of the missing and murdered. Ultimately, these kids went into state custody and they never came out. Together with missing persons expert, Dr. Michelle Shawnees, we uncover the real true crime experience. Every time we do another interview, I'm like, how do we find so many badass women? We hear from victims who turn their pain into something positive. We didn't find out till we were 11 or 12 years old that our mom was murdered. In Times Square, it said Mickey Shunick fought for her life and experts who think outside the box to solve cases. I scour missing persons databases like NamUs to see if they're uploaded to that database. Subscribe to Missing Magnolias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts today. All right, let's get into this kidnapping. Okay, my kidnapping story. So this is uh, the kidnapping of Barbara Jane Mackle. She was born on October 19th, 1948 to parents Jane and Robert Mackle. She grew up in Florida. Her dad, Robert, was a wealthy land developer in Florida who had inherited the business of land developing from his own father. The land development business was a family affair and was run by Robert and his two brothers. So his dad started the business and then Robert and his brothers took it over, basically. They uh, were not only wealthy, but they were very noteworthy. So newspapers reported on like the family's activities, their outings, uh, things that they did, like moving from one neighborhood to the next neighborhood. It was all in there. And in the 1960s, their net worth wasn't exactly known, but their assets were in the millions. And back in the 60s, that would have been tens of millions of dollars in today's money. So they had reported it was about $2 million worth of assets, which is a couple tens of, you know, it's like 20 plus million dollars in today's money. Barbara was well-liked in her school and community. In 1966, she began attending Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where she majored in economics. She joined a sorority and was active in school. In December of 1968, when Barbara was 20 years old, the Hong Kong flu hit the campus and Barbara got sick. She was so sick that she couldn't complete some of her final exams. Her mother, Jane, had come up to the area and was staying in a hotel uh, that was nearby, just a couple miles away from the college campus. The two stayed in the hotel for a few days while Barbara was recovering from her illness. They planned to return to the Coral Gables, Florida area uh, for Christmas break. But they wanted Barbara to heal a little bit before they went on the road ride. It was like a 10-hour trip, and so, you know, and back then cars didn't drive as fast. So it was probably more like a 10 to, you know, 11 to 12 hour trip because nobody's driving 80 miles an hour, probably down the freeway. Oh, wait, did I say I drive 80 miles an hour down the freeway? Maybe sometimes. Uh, Anyway, when Barbara was, uh, you know, staying at the hotel, it was just to help her recuperate a little bit. And uh, then they planned to go back home. 
So on Tuesday, December 17th, there was a knock on the hotel room door early in the morning, like four in the morning. If somebody is knocking on my hotel room door at four in the morning, they're probably not going to get any kind of a response from me, but that's just me. So Barbara's mom, Jane, checked the peephole in the door and saw a man wearing a visor with the word police written on it. The man stated that there had been a car accident involving a vehicle that matched the description of one of Barbara's friends. So she had this friend. He drove a white, I think it was Ford vehicle. And the policeman at the door was saying there's been an accident. Um, The guy in the accident... This is the car he was driving, and he's asking for Barbara. And he had enough information that made Barbara and Jane concerned. So Jane opened the door, and there was a large man standing there carrying a shotgun, but he was not a police officer, which they would soon find out. He was also not alone. Initially, Jane described the other person as a young boy, approximately 12 years old, and that person was wearing a ski mask. The intruders placed a chloroform-soaked rag over Barbara's face, tied her hands and feet with cords. Jane, her mom, also was bound. They tied her hands and feet, and they placed tape over her mouth. The pair then carried the unconscious Barbara out of the hotel room, leaving Jane alone. As the tape loosened over Jane's mouth, she began yelling, but no one heard her. Even though her hands and feet were tied, she managed to get outside and into her vehicle, where she just laid on the car's horn. She was honking. She's like, no one's hearing me yelling. They're going to hear this car horn. So the blaring horn soon got the attention of the hotel staff, who found Jane in the parking lot still tied up. She explained what had happened and that her daughter had been kidnapped. The night clerk at the hotel was able to remove Jane's bindings. She called the police and she reported the attack. About five hours after the abduction, Barbara's father, Robert, received a call at home from the kidnappers. I can't even imagine any of that scenario. Like, that's just terrifying. He was instructed to dig under a rock. What's that? Being kidnapped does not sound fun. Mm -mm. So when Barbara, or uh, excuse me, when Robert got the phone call, he was instructed to dig under a rock on the corner of the property where he located a tube containing a typed ransom note. The note was pretty detailed. And it explained that Barbara had been buried alive inside a box that had enough food and water to sustain her for seven days. The note demanded a ransom of $500,000, which equates to about $4.5 million in today's money. The kidnappers were specific on the denomination of the money. They said they wanted $20 bills only. They, the bills had to be of a specific like year forward. So I think it was like 1950 forward. Um, So they were specific on the denomination, the age of the bills, and that the bills did not have any sequential serial numbers. 
The ransom note further detailed the specific piece of luggage to use for the money and that once the money had been obtained, Robert was to place an ad in the Miami Herald newspaper. The ad was specifically to state, quote, Loved one, please come home. We will pay all expenses and meet you anywhere at any time. Your family, end quote. So Robert was able to get a hold of the money. He was told which car to use um, specifically uh, so that he could take that car to the drop spot. Then he was going to see a light flash three times and he was supposed to leave the money. Robert would then be contacted with the location of his daughter. All of this is in the notes, in the kidnapping note. The FBI quickly became involved, and Robert explained to them that he intended to follow all of the instructions in the note and get his daughter back. The FBI installed bugs at the family home and on their phones, hoping for further contact from the kidnappers. Robert was able to secure the money from his bank as directed in the note with all like the denominations were right, no matching serial numbers, no, you know, nothing else. He placed the ad in the paper. However, the paper didn't immediately publish it. So the kidnappers made further contact. They were like, okay, well, we got to make sure that this guy knows we're serious. The following day, Wednesday, they sent a Polaroid picture of Barbara lying in a box similar to a coffin with a sign on her chest, on her chest stating the word kidnapped. They also included one of her rings and the kidnappers used a priest from the family's church to contact the family. So they weren't directing the family. They weren't contacting them directly. They were using a go-between. Local law enforcement and the FBI were at odds regarding the situation. The FBI wanted to keep all the kidnapping information out of the news, but local media were given some of the information. So it was leaked. Some of the details were leaked. The feds believed the leak was done by a local law enforcement officer, so they were not inclined to share information. They were basically having a little pissing match over should we make it public, should we not make it public, and the two sides didn't agree. But two days after the abduction, the ad was finally published and the kidnappers now knew that the drop would be made. They called the family home in the early morning hours and gave the location for Robert to take the ransom. The drop location was just a few minutes away. He left the case on a section of the beach, and then he left the area. A few minutes later, a boat approached and two people got off the boat. They took the case full of money and started walking towards a nearby neighborhood where they had parked a getaway vehicle. However, hmm. residents in that area felt that the vehicle was suspicious, and so they'd been calling the cops about it. And so, like, they had called saying, oh, there's somebody's walking through backyards and it's causing dogs to bark. There's this weird vehicle parked on the street where it's not normally there's nobody parked there. So cops were kind of the local law enforcement officers were aware that something weird was happening, but they didn't know it had anything to do with a kidnapping. They go to the area to check on this suspicious vehicle they approach it as the kidnappers are getting in, and a foot chase begins. 
I mean, not the best scenario when you're trying to get your kid back from kidnappers. Yeah. Both of the kidnappers were carrying firearms and duffel bags. A few shots were exchanged between one of the kidnappers and a police officer, but no one was seriously injured. The other kidnapper not involved in the shooting was also carrying the heavy case full of money. That kidnapper dropped everything as they ran off. So they dropped the money, they dropped the duffel bag, and their weapons. Both kidnappers managed to escape, um, leaving behind their bags, their guns, and the money. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. The dad was informed a couple of hours later that the ransom exchange had not gone as planned. He learned that not only did the kidnappers get away, but they also didn't get their money, which made him really nervous because he's like, great. Now they don't have their money and that's all they wanted so I can get my daughter back. The good news was that law enforcement had the getaway vehicle, which they traced back to a man named George Deacon. Inside the vehicle, they found some Polaroid pictures of a man and a woman, as well as photos of Barbara in the box. And there were fingerprints in the vehicle, because remember, this is the 60s where, you know, I mean, fingerprints had been out for a while, but I don't think everybody, of course, these people probably thought that they were going to get their vehicle and have no tie to them anyway. Um, Because not only did they leave fingerprints in the vehicle, but there was a woman's passport in the vehicle. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Unfortunately, George Deacon, uh, the registered owner of the vehicle, was an alias, but they were able to determine from the fingerprints that the real person attached to the vehicle was an escaped prisoner named Gary Christ. Gary Christ was a 24-year-old man with a history of illegal activities dating back to when he was a teenager. His legal troubles landed him in a California prison in 1966, and in November of 1967, he and his cellmate made an escape. His cellmate was killed in the escape, but Gary managed to get away. So they they know from the fingerprints that this is Gary Christ and that it's not this guy named George Deacon. At the time when he made his getaway, when he escaped prison, He was married with a child, and he knew they needed to disappear, so he moved his family to Massachusetts. This is where he became George Deacon. He was hired by MIT to work as a technician in the school's magnet laboratory. By all accounts, he got along well with his coworkers, and no one suspected that he was actually an escaped convict. But Gary wanted more than what his job could afford him. So in 1968, he moved the family, his wife, and now two young children to Florida. This time, he was working as a research technician for Miami University, still under the name of George Deacon. And this is where he met graduate student named Ruth Shire. She was 25 years old and originally from Honduras. Her parents were Austrian Jewish refugees who had fled the Nazis. Ruth was the owner of the passport found in the getaway vehicle. So they have her image, her name, their fingerprints, all that good stuff. 
And Ruth was a very petite woman. She was smart. She was fluent in multiple languages. She had earned multiple master's degrees from the National University in Mexico City. She began attending Miami University in the fall of 1968. Ruth and Gary met while they were on a scientific research project that was a two-week-long cruise. So they went out on this cruise and within two weeks, they were romantic. And within a few months after that, Gary had decided he didn't want to be married to his wife anymore, and he left his family. He and Ruth decided to just, you know, make their romance one for the ages. Um, he had told Ruth about his criminal history and the two started planning a way to cash in on all of his experience. And that was with the kidnapping of Barbara Mackle because she was well-known in that area. Her family had money. So they thought, what better way to make some money than kidnap a rich guy's daughter? I don't know. I think, I think a job might be better. Yeah, I would think so. But hey, you know. Well, at least you the get cup- actually paid from a job and not have to ditch your money while you're running. Right. True. And fire at police officers while they're shooting at you. <laughs> yeah. So Gary built a box that Barbara would later be buried in. It was outfitted with piping for ventilation, a battery powered light, food and water. They located a remote field to bury the box in. The couple also did extensive research on Barbara, including following her around campus, asking people about her, and noting the vehicles that her friends drove. The vehicle detail was the helpful part when they finally kidnapped her because that's what led her to believe that her friend had been in the accident. So the fact that they knew what her friends drove They said, oh, the guy's in the accident and he was driving this vehicle. And she was like, oh, my gosh, that's my friend. And that's why they opened the door. So not only did they chloroform Barbara, but they also injected her with a tranquilizer that allowed them to place her in the box. Before burying her, though, they took the Polaroid picture of her with the kidnapped signed. Barbara's father made an impact he he made an impassioned plea by publishing in the paper asking the kidnappers to contact him again um bef- he did that right after he found out that that the the whole money drop didn't go as planned um but before the article published that in the paper uh the kidnappers gary um made contact with her and i say gary did it because the two had ended up separate. When they took off running in the foot chase, they lost each other. So Gary was on his own. Ruth was on her own. Gary made contact with the father again. And he said, okay, we're going to redo this money drop thing. The money exchange took place around midnight of that day at a local shopping center. Once Gary got the money, he revealed Barbara's location. It was about 20 miles from Atlanta. FBI agents went to the woodsy field and Barbara heard their footsteps. Although she believed initially that it had been the kidnappers returning, she started knocking on the box anyway. She just wanted out, which 
I totally understand. (laughs) Yes. Barbara was found alive and mostly unharmed. I mean, she was in a box for 83 hours. Some harm was done to her, you know. But for the most part, she was okay um, physically. The FBI director at the time, J. Edgar Hoover himself, was the one to tell Robert that Barbara had been located and that she was, in fact, alive. A few days before Christmas, Barbara went home to Florida to be with her family. Law enforcement knew from the evidence found prior to finding Barbara who exactly they were looking for, but they didn't know where. Gary was on his own. He didn't know where Ruth was. Gary took some of the money uh, that he made from the money drop that went through, and he purchased a small boat from a man in West Palm Beach. Although he used a fake name, the man and his son thought he looked a lot like the police had described of the kidnapper, and so they notified the FBI. Gary and his boat were spotted in the Okeechobee waterway. A Coast Guard helicopter saw Gary leaving his boat and walking onto a small island called Hog Island. Uh, Hog Island is a densely wooded and swampy island, but they were comfortable that Gary couldn't escape. Finding him was especially difficult, though, because uh, he had diving equipment with him, so that would allow him to hide underwater while the searchers were getting close. So if he heard searchers coming, he just put on his scuba mask, took a tank in, and hung out underwater until he thought it was safe. What is this, fucking James Bond? Right? Right? Um Although it took a while, they did find him, um, but it was the next day when they finally found him. He was arrested and charged with the kidnapping. His accomplice, on the other hand, was a different story. Law enforcement knew her background because they had her passport, so they knew who she was. And it looked like, you know, that um, she could have escaped and gone anywhere. So... You know, she was kind of like based on like her description, she just looked like anybody. There were no like huge distinguishing features. So they were like, she could, and she knows all these languages and she's super smart. We don't know where she is. So they put her on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. She was the first female to make it onto that list. Mm. Which is kind of cool. I mean, if you're going to be notorious for something. Two months after the kidnapping, Ruth arrived in Norman, Oklahoma. She was going by the name Donna Willis. She claimed to be 18 years old and said that she was escaping from her abusive parents in another Oklahoma town. She met a man, a young man named John, who helped her find a place to live and a job at a local restaurant. Soon after, though, she applied for a job at the Oklahoma State Mental Hospital. And this was her downfall because... The hospital took her fingerprints, as they do with any new hire. They submitted those fingerprints, and that's how her true identity was discovered, because she applied for another job. She was arrested on March 5th, 1969. Soon after her arrest, Ruth confessed to the whole thing, and she pleaded guilty. Ruth was sentenced to seven years, but was paroled after four, and she was deported back to Honduras. Gary, on the other hand, pleaded not guilty. His trial began in May 1969. 
After about two weeks of trial and four hours of deliberation, Gary was found guilty. Kidnapping was a capital offense in Georgia, meaning Gary could receive the death penalty. However, the jury was lenient since Barbara was returned alive and Gary received a life sentence instead. Apparently, he felt very certain that he wasn't going to get the death penalty because Barbara was still alive. And I guess he was kind of bragging about it, like, they're not going to kill me because she's still alive, so it's fine. Uh, He was sentenced to life, but as we have seen before, life doesn't always mean life. He was paroled after serving 10 years. In a strange twist, he was pardoned for his crimes. So not only was he paroled, but he was pardoned because he had been accepted to medical school and he needed the pardon so that he could go to medical school in Mexico and he became a doctor, a medical doctor. After earning his medical degree, I know, he returned to the U.S. and opened an office in Indiana. He practiced medicine for two years until it was discovered that he lied about a disciplinary action when he was a resident doctor. Three years later, in 2006, Gary was arrested again, but this time it was on drug charges when he was found with over 30 pounds of cocaine and an underground drug lab on his property in Georgia. That's crazy. Yeah. He pleaded guilty on the drug charges and was sentenced to five years in prison, but he was paroled in 2010. He wrote an autobiography about the kidnapping titled The Man Who Kidnapped Barbara Mackle. This isn't the only book written about the event, though. Barbara Mackle co-authored a book about her experience titled 83 Hours Till Dawn. This This book is basically the only time that Barbara has spoken publicly about the kidnapping. And that is my story about the kidnapping of Barbara Jane Mackle. It's super wild. I think it's great that she survived. I mean, being buried terrifying. Alive, yeah, that's pretty impressive. But um, I guess they were, I mean, it's great. I don't know if there was a kidnapping today. I mean, this sounds so bizarre to think and say, but I don't know if they, if the, kidnappers would think that far in advance of, well, if she's returned alive and I'm caught, they're not going to sentence me to death because she was alive. Yeah. But very interesting story. Do you have a chaser? I do have a chaser. So my chaser, my chaser is a drink, which I don't think we've ever done before. But the reason it's my chaser is because uh, we recently went to our favorite Italian restaurant for uh, Valentine's Day. And I had my favorite drink at that restaurant. And I managed mm-hmm. to get the recipe for my favorite drink. And 
the drink is called the Fistful of Dollars. And diamonds, right? What's that? Diamonds, Fistful of Diamonds. Diamonds, sorry. Fistful of Diamonds. Yes. I don't know if I said the <laughs> Fistful of Diamonds is the drink. And it is such a tasty cocktail. It is one of my favorites that I only tried because someone else at our table months ago tried it. And then ever since we've been back, I don't get anything but this drink. Hmm. And it's so good and it's so fruity and it's sweet and it's got, um, it's, it has an orange Calabrian chili jam in it that has a little bit of heat to it, but it's still sweet and it's so freaking tasty. Um, and I was so excited that I was able to get the drink recipe. And then the bartender even gave me some tips on like, cause you know, we've done jam in a cocktail recipe before and I could never get the jam to, it just solidified you know, when you put the jam mm -hmm. in the shaker and she, the bartender told me to dissolve the jam and a little bit of hot water. And she's like, oh, that way it doesn't solidify. Smart. And I was like, oh my God, that is so smart. I was just dumbfounded. Like why I didn't think of that sooner, but <laughs> yeah, it was. So I'm really, really happy that I have my fistful of diamonds cocktail recipe. Yeah. I really like that drink. It was so good. What yeah. is your chaser? My chaser is a YouTube channel. Oh, it's called Trick Trendy, and this dude basically just goes on crazy expensive vacations, like twenty thousand dollar first class, uh, like. What's that? What he called? Um, air. I don't know. He goes on like crazy trips. He goes to like things that are better than the Haven, like the Captain's oh, okay. Suite, and it's like a Who's full apartment it? in there. I have no idea. He says a lot that he pays for it, but I, I don't know if he gets like sponsors or oh. I don't know. They're pretty crazy though. It's really interesting to like watch those videos and be like, wow, that this is how I want to live. Yeah. Like there's planes that have like hotel rooms basically on them, like a oh. shower, like a seating area. Like it, it's pretty crazy. I want to live like that. Why can't I live like that? I deserve to live like that. Money. I know. Yeah. So go check out our Patreon. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, please. We would like to go on a vacation and then we'll come on and we'll tell you all about it. And then maybe if you're super lucky, we'll invite somebody. That'd be cool. For sure. All right. I think that wraps us up on this episode. It does. I enjoyed hearing that crazy. Imagine you're like, your doctor is someone who kidnaps someone <laughs> could i could not even runner. imagine <laughs> yeah right that's pretty nuts i, I, I <laughs> couldn't even imagine 
Definitely makes me wonder about my doctors, all of my doctors now. <laughs> Did you kidnap someone a while ago? <laughs> awesome. Love you, Mom. Well, love you too. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.